Our text this evening will come from the book of Hebrews chapter 2. We will consider the 10th verse, the second half of that verse in particular. And as you turn there this evening, I'm going to read from verses 1 through 10 so that we again have the context and just make two comments before we read this portion of the scripture. The first is when having the opportunity to exhort often, I can sometimes take it for granted and I need to give thanks to my pastor for this opportunity to bring God's word into the session for allowing it. It is a joy for me to be able to bring God's word to you and a joy to be able to do that under this session. And so I'm very thankful for the brothers. Uh, But also, if you remember those that were here, uh, I guess it's been about a month since we were last in Hebrews, we considered the first half of verse 10, and I, I don't intend you to remember everything about that, but we considered that it was fitting for God that he would bring many sons to glory. And we considered what that meant, that many sons would be brought to glory. And tonight, the, the text takes us then to ask the question that's logical, how will God bring many sons to glory? That's the question of the text tonight. And the answer is found in the second half of that verse, that God will make the captain of our salvation perfect through suffering. So that's the context tonight. Let's give our attention to the word of God, Hebrews chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast in every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his will. For he has not put the world to come, of which we speak, in subjection to angels. But one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now, we do not yet see all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, Long ago, at the time of the evening sacrifice on Mount Carmel, the fire came down from heaven and licked up the water, the dust, and the bull that was set there for the offering. So we ask tonight that the fire of the Spirit of God would come down upon your people and upon your, your, uh, your servant as he exhorts and expounds your word, and that we might know you, and the power of your salvation, and the glory of your name, and leave this place not the same that we came, but leave this place filled with the Holy Spirit of power, trusting in the God of power, 
that Jesus Christ is the powerful and only way of salvation. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In the 118th Psalm, the psalmist said many things about his position in the world, and perhaps more so the position of the world in relation to him. He said in verse 10, all nations surrounded me. He said in verse 11, they surrounded me. Yes, they surrounded me. They surrounded me like bees. The picture here is one of warfare. It's one that the psalmist is keen to bring out in the Psalms of the Christian going and doing battle with the many temptations and many enemies that the Christian faces. And it's an appropriate picture in the scripture because that warfare started long ago in the garden when the devil came and tempted Eve and she took and ate and she gave that fruit to Adam and the day that he ate it, he surely died. There was the warfare starting, the man wrestling against Satan and the temptations of the flesh, but the war was one that was declared by God himself. For as God came to Adam and Eve in the garden and the serpent was still there, he said, I will put enmity between thy seed and her seed. And from that very opening days of creation, God ordained a war, a battle, and it has been raging for millennia, ever since. The end of it, of course, is certain. For Christ Jesus himself has defeated Satan and crushed that wicked serpent's head. How often do we think of the Christian life in these terminologies, military terminology, the terminology of war? I fear one of the great issues in the church today, not pointing out any particular church, but speaking broadly, is that the church thinks little of the battle that it's in. If it thinks of a battle, it's more like a skirmish with the world, rather than a great conflict for the souls of men, rather than the great battle between where will a soul end, in hell or in heaven, for all eternity, there is more and more in our present day, as has been going on for a hundred years, 130 years, more and more a compromise with the world, and a desire for the church to be at peace with the world. So often, as was mentioned this morning in Sunday school, the church can even seem as if it's asleep, as the world rages around us seeking to devour the very souls of God's elect. If it could, it can't do that with God's elect. But it can certainly pluck out those that appear to be God's elect that are not. And as all of these battles rage around us, the world, the church, sometimes seems to be asleep to it. We must, as the people of God, be drawn back to consider the great power of God that is at work. That the God that we read of in Scripture, who did marvelous and glorious things, we could have read of some of those if we had continued in 1 Samuel, seeing the great victory of the Lord that was started by just Jonathan and his armor bearer against a Philistine army that was so great, they couldn't even number the foot soldiers. Too many. Like the sand of the seashore. The great God who delivered Israel time and time again from its overwhelming enemies, sometimes with the hand of one young shepherd boy with a sling, 
sometimes with two soldiers, sometimes with no soldiers at all, but just the people singing and God going before them and discouraging, disrupting, and then destroying armies of their enemies. That that great God is our God, and he will be our God forever and ever, even unto and through death. We must recover something of the power of God if the church is going to advance in this present evil age. But too often, the enticements of the world cause many in the world to sell their souls to the things of the world. There is that promise of wealth, that thing that has caused so many to stumble and fall. The promise of money that people have given, a man has given the best of his life, the best of his strength, to serve that God of wealth, that love of wealth that he has, that maybe he'll attain for a little while. And after pursuing with all his energy some measure of wealth and perhaps receiving it, he comes to the end of his days, he comes to death, he comes to destruction. Great promise of happiness and satisfaction, and it wasn't to be found. It slipped away. Or that promise of the lusts of the flesh that are all around us, raging perhaps even in some of our hearts during the week and maybe even this day, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, all of these things, the world says, pursue them, go after them, give your soul to them. And while people might have the satisfaction of their lusts for some time, they find that it doesn't give them what they wanted. It never satisfies, it always needs more. And the end thereof is death and eternal destruction. Or what of the heart that we're told always to pursue and to follow? Follow your heart, it will never let you down. And yet God has said in his word that the heart is deceitful above all else and desperately wicked. Who can know it but him alone? He who knows the heart better than the heart of men knows how deceitful it is. And he says, don't follow your heart. But all around us, the world is saying, follow it. Follow your dreams. Whatever your heart desires, pursue it. And what is the end of following the heart? The same as wealth and lust, destruction and death. The end of each of these things that the world presents to us is always the same, death. There is no escape, no escape to be found in the world, no peace to be found in the merchants of peace that are in the world tonight. There is only one way of escape. And thanks be to God that by his grace, He is bringing and has brought many sons to glory. We saw that last time. He is bringing, he has brought many sons to glory. He's done it by his grace alone, as verse 9 of Hebrews 2 told us. Entirely of his grace and goodness, he brought many sons to glory. But we want to consider how he does that. We saw that Jesus tasted death for everyone, but how is it? How is it that he brings those sons to glory? And the answer that he gives so clearly and so emphatically, and I hope we never lose this phrase and this title for Jesus, he sent the captain of salvation. He sent the captain of salvation because there was nothing in the world that could save. There was only death in the world. He had to send someone else. He had to send his only begotten son. And he did send him, Jesus Christ, 
the captain of our salvation. Let us behold him tonight as we consider this text under three headings. First, the captain sent. Second, the captain perfected. And third, the captain displayed. First, let us consider the captain sent. It was fitting for God to bring many sons to glory, and it was fitting for him to accomplish that salvation through a perfect Savior. The title, Captain, Captain of our Salvation, it probably evokes many ideas, depending on what you've been thinking about over this past week or where your interests are. In Hebrews, we've already seen a picture in in verse 1 of of maritime dealings. There was the picture of letting the great salvation that had been taught in chapter 1, letting it drift away, like someone might drift away from a dock, like a boat that is unhitched from the dock might drift away. And so here is that picture once again of a captain. A captain of a vessel has in some ways, we might say, sovereign authority over what takes place while that vessel is not in port. A captain has tremendous authority by international law and by the laws of almost every single nation. Where he says that ship goes, it goes. He has authority. When you think of captain, think of one who has authority, who has control. But I don't want us just to think of a captain like we might think of a captain of a, of a merchant vessel that's sailing on the high seas tonight. Think of a captain in the military sense. Think of a captain who's the captain of a great ship. One of the such captains that's famous in history was one known as Horatio Nelson, or Lord Nelson, after he was knighted and made an admiral. And it was said of the sailors that were in his fleet and the captains that served him that they would go with him to any battle, into any danger, whatever the odds, they followed their captain. And do you know why they followed him? If you've ever seen a picture of him later in life before his death, if it's an accurate picture, you're going to notice that there's a lot of problems with the man. He has something wrong with his eye. There might be a patch over his eye. Because one time he was in a battle with the French and a bullet fragment hit him in the eye and blinded him. You might notice that he's missing an arm later in life because in another battle, his arm was shot through and it was amputated from almost the shoulder down. The man was very beat up from the battles he went to because he was a captain that did not lead from behind, that did not order men to go where he would not go, but he went first. He went into the fiercest part of the battle. And because he went there, many followed him. And great was the morning when he finally died in yet another battle. Keep that picture in mind as you think of a captain. In the scripture, we're given many examples of captains. In Numbers chapter 2, as the tribes of Israel are being ordered by God as to how they're going to surround the tabernacle. And remember, all the tribes surrounded the tabernacle, so it was protected on all sides. God numbered the people in numbers, and he, he ordained that there would be a captain over each of the armies of the tribes of Israel. And they're all named there in Numbers chapter 2. Captains who would lead the people out to battle from each tribe, and they typically fought according to their tribe, following their particular captain who they knew from among their own tribe. David. In some translations, what we read in 1 Samuel, David is called a captain of God's own heart. I think in the New King James, he's referred to as a commander. David, you know, had many mighty men. 
and chief among them was one Adino the Exonite. I don't know where that comes from, but Adino the Exonite was chief among them all. Why? Because of what he did. And this captain, you can read of it in 1 Chronicles 11, this man who was chief among all the other mighty men, he was chief for this reason. At one time in battle, he slew, killed 800 enemies of Israel. One time which puts him yet less than that great captain of Israel, Samson, who killed 1,000 at one time. And at his death, 3,000, worshiping Dagon, their god, he brought them down at the end of his life. All of these are pictures that perhaps come to your mind as you think of captains. And what is this title that's given to Jesus? Well, Jesus is the captain of our salvation because he is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he is not the captain of armies of men on earth going out and doing battles with other countries. He is the captain of salvation, leading armies of children of God from this life to glory. If we could put it this way, Jesus is ordained by God to bring many sons to God, whom God is bringing then on to glory. Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the captain of of our salvation. It is a great title, not a small title, but a great one for the Savior. And as we think about this captain being sent, I want us to notice several things. First, Jesus is being proclaimed captain of our salvation so that we might see that every aspect of our salvation is worked out by God himself. He who ordained many sons to be brought to glory also ordained and raised up the Savior to bring them there. If you would, turn to the Gospel of John in chapter 6. John chapter 6 in verse 38. Jesus says the following, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. The Father sent the Son to give eternal life to all that believe on the name of the Son. Well, he sent his Son to also teach us this, and we learn this from this title of captain of our salvation, that wretched man in his miserable state is left to do, able to do nothing for his salvation, only able to receive. It is a salvation that is made ready for the vilest offenders, for the most backwards of reprobates, for the fiercest of those who have been foolish in denying God for all their lives. The Savior is sent to them. He is entirely from God, so that sinners such as us, who are far from God, might receive him by faith. That's what we see here. We're not in this picture other than we're beholding him who saved us. We are left to receive this salvation from God in Jesus Christ. The primary task of Jesus Christ, the captain, is to save his people from their sins. 
The title that's translated here, Captain, in verse 10, is one that's used a few other times in the New Testament. It's translated a few different ways. In Hebrews 12 and verse 2, it's translated of Jesus that he is the author and perfecter, or the author and the finisher of our faith. Twice in Acts, this same title is translated Prince. We get something of the depth of the meaning of this word, that Jesus Christ is the captain, the author, the prince of salvation for his people. He is the prince of salvation as our mediator. And he has been sent by God to gain a full and complete salvation for the many sons and children of God. Well, at this point, one may say, okay, that was his task, but did he do it? And if he did it, did he do it completely? And this leads me to my next heading, and that is the captain perfected. The captain is perfected. The answer to that first question, did he do it, did he earn salvation, is absolutely that he did. That salvation is accomplished. For even as we were told in verse 9, Jesus, the captain of our salvation, has tasted death for everyone. And you'll remember that that everyone there is referring to every child of God. Why would God put the world in subjection to man rather than to an angel or some other being, as is the argument of chapter 2? Why was that? So that Jesus, the man, fully man and fully God, might taste death for every one of his children. He certainly accomplished salvation. But it's the second part of that question that the text is highlighting tonight. Did he do it completely? Is Jesus the sufficient Savior? I can think of no greater comfort to the souls of Christians this evening than the sufficiency of Christ's work on the cross. This is a topic that I hope to meditate on the rest of my life and benefit from it even more than I already have. That Jesus Christ is the all-sufficient Savior. And this title, Captain of Salvation, brings out that he is the perfect Savior, for he has provided a sufficient sacrifice. How can you know that he is the perfect Savior? And the answer that's given to us in the text is, through his suffering. We're called to behold the Savior as he suffered on the cross, as Hebrews is so keen to bring out, and it'll come out in many different ways in the remaining chapters of this book, that Jesus Christ is perfected in suffering. But I want to address one word here that has caused some to stumble in the past, and I don't want any that are near to the kingdom of God tonight or in the kingdom of God tonight to stumble at this word, because some have looked at this and they see that God has brought many sons to glory by by making or to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. I want to address what is this to make the captain of their salvation perfect? What are we talking about, that God makes Jesus perfect? Let it be said very clearly that Jesus from all eternity is eternal, omnipotent, omniscient God, the second person of the Trinity. He is, was, and always will be perfect in every way. There is nothing imperfect or missing about Christ. This is not saying that God made Jesus perfect because he was imperfect. And at the cross, he who was imperfect became perfect. That is not what this text is saying. Don't read it that way. Never think of your Savior Savior as at any time being imperfect. 
That is not what it's talking about. What is it talking about? Well, God is speaking here, as he's been doing in chapter 2, of a particular office of Christ. Do you remember what that office is? Maybe the children remember. We had a whole message on it. Jesus Christ, our mediator. The Lord is speaking of Jesus Christ as our mediator. You remember that the mediator is one that comes between two parties that are at at odds, that are at war with one another. And the mediator makes peace between those that are at war. And in our case, we have sinned against the holy God, and therefore the wrath of God is justly placed against sinners. And Jesus Christ, the mediator, he comes in between And there he makes payment for the sins of all his children. His blood is poured out in payment to the Father. His blood is sprinkled on his people to wash away their sins. That's what he did as the mediator. So what is the high point? What is the grandeur? What is the perfection of Christ as the mediator? His suffering on the cross. That's where the blood was shed. If Jesus came and and praise be to God, this never happened, but he only lived a perfect life and departed from us, we would still be in our sins tonight, an imperfect mediator. That's not the mediator we need. The mediator that we need is the one who came and did what Jesus did, who gave his life and shed his blood for sinners such as us. He's perfected in his mediation and in his office of mediation by suffering. That's where the glory is. That's what's meant by he's made captain of salvation through suffering. But there is another way that this is intended for us, and that is that Jesus is perfected in revelation in his suffering. Until the death of Christ, his glory was hidden, revealed, veiled, whatever term we've used for that in the past. And it is as Jesus is lifted up on Calvary's hill, quite literally, not merely figuratively, But the Son of Man is lifted up on the cross that all the world is drawn to look at Him. And as John tells us in multiple places, He's lifted up on Calvary's hill that many sons would come to Him. His glory is revealed in His sufferings. He's made perfect in that way in revelation of Himself to the world, even in His sufferings, so that at the end of the book of Mark, As Jesus gives up the ghost on the cross, the centurion who was overseeing it all, he makes confession of this very point because he looked and beheld him who had just died, and he said, truly, this man was the Son of God, perfected in revelation through his suffering. But let us address exactly how the captain of our salvation is perfect. First, he's perfect because of the perfect payment that he made in his suffering on the cross. A perfect payment on the cross. Galatians chapter 3 and the 13th verse. Paul writes concerning Jesus, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. The perfection of Christ, our captain of salvation, is made known in his perfect payment. The curse was paid. 
The wrath was satisfied on the cross. But secondly, the perfection of Christ our captain on the cross is made known because the perfect payment he made was the full payment. The full payment for sin. The satisfaction of the wrath of God was made completely to the uttermost. This is the high point of the doctrine and the theology of the book of Hebrews. We've said that this book is making known to us the absolute supremacy of Jesus Christ over all else. But we said that similarly to that, or directly next to that, is that it's showing us the perfect way of salvation through Christ and Christ alone. In the very middle of this book, which we'll make reference to and That could make it hard to actually preach from it because we reference it so often along the way that when we come to it, the sermons may have already been preached. But at the very middle of this book, we read these great words that are the high point, the summary of the book of Hebrews concerning Jesus Christ and what he has done. Hebrews 7 and verse 25, Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all, when he offered up himself. The sacrifice that Christ made was a full payment for the sins of his people. The wrath of God was completely satisfied that all that are in Christ have nothing else that they're looking for for salvation. It is done once and for all in Christ. The full satisfaction of sin through the perfect payment of sin. But there's another way that I want us to think about this perfection, and that is that because of the payment, because of the suffering of Christ, that payment, if we can put it this way, is available for you today. There's an invitation that comes from this, isn't there? Because the wrath of God has been fully satisfied in Christ for all who believe, for all the sons of God, and for no one else, only the sons of God, And the way to become a son of God is to repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And for all that do that, there is an available payment for sin in Jesus Christ. And so God calls us over and over through his son to come to the Father. And we read of those words in Matthew 11, verse 28, where Jesus said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. How could Jesus make such an offer? Because he is able to save to the uttermost all who come to him by faith. This is the glory of the gospel. This is the thing that Paul boasted in. This is the gospel that Jesus wept over Jerusalem because they would not believe it. Full satisfaction for sin through the perfect payment of sin through the blood of Christ on the cross. He is made perfect in suffering as the captain of our salvation. If any have not come to Christ, come to him by faith tonight and abandon all else because there is one only Savior of sinners. 
And that brings us to then the, my final heading, and that is the captain displayed. The captain displayed. And I want us to behold Christ as he is the captain of our salvation. And in this way, I want to give two warnings, make one acknowledgement, and then finally make one call or pleading to you. The first warning is this. Consider how many captains you see in this text. It's one of the obvious applications that comes out of the book of Hebrews over and over again, but we must make reference to it because God puts it here over and over again. Some will hear of the captain of salvation, and there are some who maybe could listen to this sermon up until this point and agree, but they would, they would leave from here, and if they go to many of the churches around us, they would go and they would bow down and pray to other mediators. How many captains do you see in this text? Here's the warning. There are not captains many. There is but one captain. One captain of salvation. For since I can remember teaching at this church, doing Sunday schools many years ago, I have warned, and sometimes to the disappointment of visitors who were here, but I've warned about the unnatural friendship of evangelical and Reformed Christians with Roman Catholics, with those that are following after those what are sometimes called Orthodox but are anything but Orthodox religions. And there you see this heresy brought out, perhaps to its fullness, I hope it's never expounded on. But there you see not one captain, but many captains. It is enshrined in the very catechism of the Roman Catholic Church that Mary is the co-mediatrix of Christians. Co-mediator. Second captain. Next to Christ. Co-sufferer, she is sometimes called, even bearing the sins of those that would cry out to her. Do you see that in this text? There are not many captains here. There is but one captain of salvation who was made perfect in suffering. Christ is all-exclusive with this title. And to give that title to any other, even the very mother of Jesus, is utter blasphemy. It is very opposite of the Christian religion. It is to rob God of his glory and to take from him the work that he exclusively did and ascribe that work to another. And our God is a jealous God, and he shares his glory with no one else. And if his mother were here tonight, she would in fact be weeping that anybody would ever call out to her who needed the salvation of Jesus Christ rather than going directly to him. There are not captains many. There is but one captain. The church is not the captain of salvation. You are not the captain of your salvation. Jesus himself, Jesus alone, is the captain of salvation. Be warned of the many other captains that are thrown out there. There is but one, and it is Jesus Christ. That's the first warning. The second warning is that a presentation is made of a captain of salvation who didn't suffer. Our text says that God... It was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. Here is the very offense of the gospel, that there was need for a Savior who would suffer for man. It's offensive in many respects. It's offensive because it means that we're sinners and that we need saving. 
It's offensive because the King of Glory would have to suffer for us. And so many in the liberal religions, and this started well over 150 years ago, in the liberal religions and the humanistic religions, they reject the cross as offensive. They remove the suffering from Christ. And let us be warned in this way, that to remove the offense of Christianity, the suffering of Christ on the cross, is to remove Christianity. There is no more Christianity. It may very well be another, another religion. And people are free to follow other religions all the way to the destruction that they bring. But it is not Christianity. A Christ, they preach a Christ who did not pay for a people who do not sin. That's not Christianity. If you hear that, run from it. The suffering Messiah is an embarrassment to them. This is all around us. Where are those churches today? This past week I was, had reason to be in midtown Atlanta dropping off my wife at a doctor's appointment with five kids in the car. So we went for a drive after sitting in a parking lot. And I said, I've heard of another Planned Parenthood in East Atlanta. I want to go drive by it and see what's there. And we drove by that Planned Parenthood in East Atlanta in one of the poorest parts of the city. And right next to it was a big church. So I went online to see what it was that this church taught. And it may not surprise you that this was a United Methodist Church, and on its opening page it had great rainbow flag colors. It was promoting all those justice terms that put words and adjectives in front of them to tell you that they don't mean God's justice, but they mean men's ideas. You know, it wasn't many, many, it wasn't long ago Perhaps some of us have grandparents who were greatly benefited by the Methodist churches. And you are hard-pressed today to find a United Methodist Church that has anything close to the gospel in it. And you're much more likely to find one that is preaching an entirely different religion, though there are Bibles in the pews and crosses on the walls. That is where, that is where a Christ without suffering leads you into a whole other religion, and the morality follows that other religion to destruction. So liberalism here is undone with one verse. There is no salvation without suffering. There is no salvation without the shedding of blood. There can be no remission of sins without our perfect Savior going through the cross and suffering on our behalf. There is no gospel apart from the cross and suffering. There is no faithful church without the offense of the cross being preached, for it is still tonight the power of God unto salvation. So we preach Christ, not merely Christ, we preach Christ crucified. Foolishness to those that are perishing, but to those that believe the power of God unto salvation. With the shedding of the Lamb's blood, there is life for the dead. There is hope for the miserable. There is mercy for the most pitiable person. There is salvation for the sinner. So those are the two warnings, not captains many, but one captain, not a Christ without suffering, but a Christ who suffered. Then let me make this acknowledgement. Jesus suffered greatly in this life, and those who follow the captain of their salvation to the glory he is bringing us to will also suffer. I know that this is not news for many of you. Many of you have suffered greatly in your lives, among your families. Some of you are going through great suffering right now. That's acknowledged in the Scripture. The writer Peter in 1 Peter chapter 5 
He said this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in verses 10 and 11. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. If you are suffering tonight, you are following in good company. You're following the captain of your salvation who was perfected in suffering even on the cross. If you have not gone through suffering, be prepared. It is the way to glory, and it is a glorious way to glory. For when we are, str- when we are weak, God is very strong. When we suffer as Christians, our eyes are forced to look all the more to him who suffered greatly and far more on that cross on Calvary's hill. Here's the call. Christ suffered to bring many sons to glory. The world hated him. It will hate the children of God. If you are a child of God, God, not walking in the world, then the world hates you. The temptation is going to be to fall back at the thought of suffering. Many don't want to be despised by the world. They want that friendship with the world that looks so enticing tomorrow. But for eternity, it's utter damnation. And so the call is to look to Jesus, who was perfected as captain of our salvation in his suffering, and follow him. The battle is fierce. The battle is raging even now, whether you realize it or not. The battle is raging. It's lust seek to pull us down into that pit and the miry clay and the swamp that leads to the quicksand where it would seek to devour the Christian. Are you tempted tonight to fall back? Are you tempted to slow down in your race that you are running, looking unto Jesus, the author, the captain of your salvation and the perfecter of it? God forbid that you might be tempted to give up or change sides. Are you holding fast but wondering how long you can hold on? Are you tired of the warfare because it comes with a lot of despising by friends, by neighbors, by family members? You have to stand firm on the word of God that people think is silly. How long can you do it? I urge you, as you are thinking about these things and maybe those temptations have come upon you, look up to Calvary's Hill with eyes of faith today. Look up at that cross because there that cross has become the great banner of the Lord. And it is firmly fixed, and it cannot be moved. The truth of the Lord endures forever. And the glory of Christ extends from sea to sea. And all men will one day see him as he truly is, even as you have seen him by faith. There is that cross where he suffered. He is not on it anymore, for he is no longer suffering. And one day, you and I will no longer be suffering in this world. But Jesus is no longer suffering because he conquered death in the grave. And we're going to see much more of that in this chapter, God willing. But look and see that cross lifted up. Look and see his saints throughout history and even in the present day who are tried on every side and they are now even rallying around that banner of the Lord. There they go, taking up their crosses and following him just as he said. Will you not take up your cross and follow him as he said? There they go, marching into the darkness with the word of truth and with the light of Jesus Christ, and the darkness cannot comprehend it, and it cannot stop it. 
And the light is piercing the darkness, and many sons more are coming to glory. The dry bones are living through the Word of God. It's happening still, even if we see it very little in our lifetimes. Look in the mirror. If you are a child of God, this very thing has happened to you. Don't give up hope in the suffering. But gird up your loins, as the Scripture says. Put on the whole armor of God. Follow Him. There is the call. Follow Him, the captain of your salvation. If you're not following Him tonight, I urge you, don't leave here tonight until you're following Him. Pastors here, elders are here, you can talk to us about these things. Do not leave tonight until you are following Him. But those following the Lord tonight, what work has God set before you as you take up your cross and follow Him who suffered as the captain of your salvation? What work has He ordained for you to do? What are you going to do now? that you know this, if you are assured that Jesus Christ is the perfect, all-sufficient captain of your salvation, what will you do? Are you going to expect those great things of God even as you attempt great things for Him? What great works of the Lord will you behold Him do as you serve Him against all opposition and mockery of men? Here's Atlanta, a massive city. Will you be praying tonight, young men, Even as some ministers prayed before, as they looked out on great cities, they prayed, God, give me this city for you. Are you praying for the people that are all around us by the millions that they might know God and the power of his salvation wrought through the captain, the Lord Jesus Christ? Oh, may the Lord open our eyes that we might, even like that man who saw the salvation of God even in the healing of his feeble, lame legs. May we leave this place walking, leaping, and praising God for the salvation that he has worked for us in Christ Jesus. There is our captain of salvation. There is he who sits on his throne tonight. He is yours if you are in Christ. We are his. Let us then confess, even as Paul did, as he beheld the cross, God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Father, our boast is in none other but you tonight, for you have worked a great salvation among your people. It is perfect in every way, perfect in its payment, perfect in its sufficiency, perfect even to save sinners yet again tonight and this day. We ask that you would keep your people and help us from to to not fall back as we go through suffering. But may we advance looking unto Jesus, the author and captain of our salvation, who went through the great suffering of death that his children might live. O Lord, help us then to follow you and to serve you in every way that you have ordained for us according to your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.